We're in 2 Samuel today. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. We have Bibles for you in the pew rack. And you can find 2 Samuel chapter 7 on page 330. Or if you prefer, 259. Picked up the wrong, the wrong version there. So, uh, 259, trust me, it is there. It, <laughs> Second Samuel 7. Today, uh, we're, we're in our penultimate study of the covenants of, of uh, God and man throughout Scripture. God and his people. The way he, he makes binding promises, binding oaths. Uh, to his people. Uh, We're looking at the covenant with David uh, today. Uh, Next week, we're going to take a little break and focus on uh, ministering the church, just a one-off sermon there. And then we'll conclude our uh, series uh, looking at the new covenant. Um, And then after that, we're back in the book of Acts. So just kind of lay the land where we're headed. 2 Samuel 7, though, for today, the first 17 verses. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, that's David, said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words... 
In accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now the grass withers, the flower falls off. This is the word of God. It does stand forever. So we're looking at the Davidic covenant. And I want to just break it down in, in three um, categories. We're looking at three things this morning regarding this covenant. First, what God promises to David. Second, how Christ fulfills those promises. Namely, we're going to see that Christ is the one who is appointed to be the everlasting king. So what God promises David, how Christ fulfills that and is is made king. And then finally, thirdly and finally, why that's good news for you. Why you want Christ to be your king. So what God promises and how Christ fulfills it and why you want it. In this covenant, God makes a promise to David. He says he'll establish his kingly line forever. God condescends in love to David, the man after his own heart. And he says, not only will you be a king, but your son will be a king, and the son after him, and after him, and on and on. What's interesting, though, is what provokes this amazing promise from God. It's in response to David trying to do something for God. David declares, verse 5, that he wants to build God a house uh, to dwell in. He announces it earlier on, but there we see it in verse 5. Would you build me a house, God is saying to David. And, and note, it's a sincere desire. What provokes David, as we see in verse 2, is that he's living the cushy life in this palace, and then yet God's still camping out in the tabernacle, going about in a tent. He wants to do this for God. God's reply, though, is surprising. What God says is, he says, before you could ever build me a house, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to build you a house. That's in verse 11. Now, there's a play on words here. When David says he wants to build God a house, he means a temple, a church, a sanctuary. When God says he wants to, he's going to build David a house, he doesn't mean a palace. David already has that. He means a dynasty, a lineage. Um... But God flips it all around on David, doesn't he? The words of one commentator, Yahweh will be the builder and the house will be David's, not the other way around. God will be the builder and the house will be David's. We learn here, friends, that God's servants, no matter how earnest or sincere, can never outserve God. Isn't that a good lesson for us to learn? Your life will go a lot better once you figure that out. Uh, that at the end of your life, you could have done everything. Let's just say, hypothetically, you did everything that you could do. What are you going to say at the last day? I'm just an unworthy servant. You can never outserve God who meets us with his grace. That's what, what he's meeting David with. You don't deserve this, but I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And, and, and that promise is a covenantal promise. Look at verse 11. We're clued in, even though you don't find the word covenant here, we're clued into the fact that there's a covenant happening with the language, the oath language of verse 11. Verse 11, we read um, this at the very end of that verse. Moreover, the Lord declares to you. Declare is oath language. He's binding himself in promise. He's declaring what he'll do for David, regardless of David doing anything for him. This is what I will do for you. And when promises are made unconditionally by God, that means that they cannot be broken. They can't be prevented by anything. They will come to pass. And uh, commentator Dale Ralph Davis points out three ways that God secu- uh, uh, assures David that this promise will come to pass. He kind of 
he acknowledges three things that might seem to threaten this promise, and he says, no, they actually won't. The first thing is death. Death can't even break this promise. Verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, I will raise up, God says. He's telling David, even when you're dead and buried, God will still be lavishing covenantal love upon David's descendants. The covenant will continue on. And in in fact, God's saying actually that the covenant won't be fully consummated until David dies. It's not going to be you that, that's going to be the one to do this work. It's going to be one of your sons. You, gotta, you have to die for this to happen. Nothing is up to David here in this promise. It's not even up to David to stay alive. Which, by the way, is a reminder to us that none of us are so essential in God's plan that our death throws him into a panic. Oh, boy. I was really counting on their ministry. I was, really, I was really needing them to, to, to preach in this place or to serve in this, in this way. What am I going to do? They died. No. Death does not annul the promises of God. Second, death won't annul the promise. He reminds David that sin cannot break the promise even. In verses 14 through 15. God acknowledges that while the, the individual heir, the descendant, might sin and might receive God's chastisement and his rebuke when he commits adultery or commits iniquity verse 14 I will discipline him but what does he say even if I discipline him I won't I won't reject him I, I will keep my love upon him in fact the discipline will be the sign of my love so sin can't break the promise third he announces that time itself cannot exhaust this covenant from being fulfilled. You know, we have grown so cynical, uh, and and we know that that lifetime guarantees are not that. Uh, Lifetime warranties are so much better than lifetime guarantees, right? Because we expect things to break down, and we want to be able to return it when they do. Things break down because of time. Our bodies break down. Our labors, our buildings, things break down. No matter how strong or sturdy something seems to be, time has this corrosive effect. Well, what about on the promises of God? Does time corrode away, decay away the promises of God? Three times in this chapter, God uses a Hebrew phrase, Ad olam, ad olam, ad olam, forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever. It becomes the great theme of God's people. And we find it the whole way in Revelation chapter 11. And he shall reign forever and ever. And who is the he in Revelation 11? Who is it? I'm allowing you to say it this time. It's Christ. It is. How's that entire verse go? The kingdom of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation is telling us right there that The promises of a Davidic son, one who will be king forever and ever, that king is Jesus. He is the son of David who will sit on a throne forever. And that's interesting if you read your Bibles and you follow along with the Old Testament narrative because it seems like Solomon is actually the son 
that this covenant spoke of. I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4, and we're going to see a number of ways in which it seems like all the promises that God has made throughout the covenant of grace thus far are being fulfilled in Solomon. Notice there's been language, I'll just remind you as you're turning there, there was language in 2 Samuel 7 that, that hearkened back to promises made with Abraham. I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell and be disturbed no more. That was promised to Abraham to have a place. I'll give you rest. Uh, what we're learning here is that everything that God's promised so far is going to come to fruition through a king who will lead his people. Well, we look to 1 Kings 4 and it seems like that's going to be Solomon. Solomon's reign is portrayed as inaugurating all of the promises that God had made starting the whole way back with Abraham. So look at 1 Kings 4.20. Under his kingship, 1 Kings 20, uh, the nation is described as being as numerous as what? As the sand by the sea. Does that sound familiar? That's what he told Abraham in Genesis 15. Likewise, God told Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Genesis 12. Well, look at verse 34. It's in the years of Solomon that we're told that people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and came from all kings of the earth. In the Mosaic Covenant, if the nation was faithful, they were guaranteed a place in Canaan under Solomon. This is what they experienced. This is verse 25 of chapter 4. Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon, it's happening. It's finally happening. And then we, we see in 1 Kings 8, he, he erects that temple. Remember, God said, you're not going to build me a house, your son will. And that's what Solomon does. He brings the ark into the temple. And at the close there of chapter 8, God descends upon the, um, upon the temple with a rush of Wind and fire, it's the sign that God's glory is there. God is dwelling with his people. That's been the covenant promise. I will be your God and you'll be my people. And we'll live together forever and ever. It's a happy ending. First Kings 8 paints us this picture of peace and prosperity in Israel. Namely, you have God dwelling in his house and down the road you have Solomon dwelling in his house. The temple and the palace and everything is well. So, why isn't the covenant fulfilled in Solomon? Why, why don't, you know, Handel's choristers, why aren't they singing about Solomon when they get to the Hallelujah Chorus? Well, because chapter 8 gives way to chapter 9. 1 Kings 9, starting in verse 4, God comes to Solomon, much like he had come to David earlier, and he spells out to him some details that maybe he had missed about how this covenant's going to work. Look at verse 4. As for you, if, if is a scary word when it comes to covenants. It means conditions. If you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Then you can be the king who always reigns, the one that they'll sing about thousands of years later in the Messiah. If you obey, if you walk uprightly. God is saying the promise is yours, Solomon, if you obey. Now, wait a second. Right? We, said, we said this was an unconditional, unilateral promise of God. Nothing could break it, not even sin. What, what's happening here? 
What do conditions have to do with this? Keep in mind, this is really important to understand, that what God is saying here does not negate, it doesn't um, take back what he promised to David. In fact, it was embedded in the word to David also when he talked about disciplining various sons uh, who would come by. There, there would be this um, measure of morality, some more moral, some less moral. And so if they did not follow God, if, if, they, if they were not righteous, God would remove the throne from them for a time, but he never removed the throne from the dynasty. But let me put it this way. What was unconditional about the covenant is that it would always be in the family of David. Here's the conditional part. One of the sons of David would have to obey, would have to earn the blessings for everybody else. Do you, do you understand? There would have to be one who would obey conditionally. And when he would obey this son of David, he would unlock and unleash all of those unconditional promises for the rest of us, for the rest of God's people. There still needed to be this obedient son. And it's not Solomon. You get to 1 Kings 11 and you learn that he has a thing for the ladies. He's an adulterer. He's an idolater. He's proud. And so, no, he will not be the son. And, and he kicks off this this chorus, this refrain that we find throughout the rest of Kings and Chronicles. and talks about this so-and-so king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not walk in the ways of his father David. They were made, they, he left the altars to the, to the gods of the other nations up. You hear that again and again and again. What, what you're meant to think when you read 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles is, will this son ever come? The obedient one who will unlock the covenant promises that God had made the whole way back in Genesis 3.15. We need a king to crush the serpent. We need a king to bring together a people, to bring us into a land. Where is that king? And so you can imagine how, let's just say, interested people in first century would have been to hear of a baby born in the line of David, in the city of David. A baby for, for whom kings from all nations came to worship and to honor. Uh, people are starting to think this sounds familiar. Maybe, maybe what we had lost hope in is finally coming to fruition. You know who had it right? The crowds on Palm Sunday. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna, what do they say? To the son of David. They had it right about this one. And you know who else had it right? The Romans who affixed over his head king of the Jews as he died on the cross. They had it absolutely right. Remember, God told David, I will discipline him with the rod of man. With the stripes of the sons of men. So here we have the righteous son of David, who we've been waiting so long for. The cursed, uh, uh, the one who, who, who fulfilled the covenant. And now he's being cursed. He's being crushed. He's receiving the stripes of discipline. The one that all the other sons deserved. And so what a sight for a righteous king, a righteous and a good king, to have thorns for a crown and a cross for a throne. A part of the Davidic promise was that God would treat this faithful son of David like his own son. And there was this like adoption language. I'll, I'll treat him like a son to me. I'll never reject him. 
And you look at Calvary and you think, well, how about that? If anything spoke more loudly of rejection, it's this. He's supposed to be the son of God and yet God doesn't even want him. It's as though God's saying to him, not only are you not a king, I don't even want you in my family. We think the Davidic promise has failed again. You think that if you look to Calvary, but when you look to the empty tomb, you realize something a lot different. You see, because he was righteous, because he was obedient, death could not hold him. And when he is raised from the dead, it is proof that he is more than just a son of David. He is the son of God. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul opens up his letter to Romans. When he talks about the gospel, he says the gospel is all about God's son, listen to this, who is descended from David according to the flesh, descended from David, but declared to be the son of God in power according to his resurrection. The resurrection is the proof that he is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the son who would reign forever. Literally, he won't even die. He can't die. Christ has fulfilled this covenant. He has been made king. And so the Davidic covenant frames for us uh, who Jesus is. It teaches us that one of the key ways, if not the key way, that we need to understand the person and work of Jesus is to understand him as a king. And that's really hard to do, isn't it? And I said to pay attention earlier because it's what Randy and Angie did a few moments ago when they acknowledged that he's their sovereign lord. He's their king. They're going to do what he says. We don't like that. We don't like that at all. Uh, tell me he's a good teacher. Fine. Tell me, tell me he's a miracle worker. I, I don't care. Tell me he's my savior even. That's great. But don't you dare tell me he's my king and I have to live my life the way he wants me to live. That I have to stop doing stuff I like doing. That he calls the shots. Don't tell me that. We balk at that notion of Jesus as king because it undermines our self-rule, our autonomy. If he's king, that means the posture that God wants me to take in life isn't one of me being seated on my throne, but me bowing before his throne. But the Davidic covenant is impressing upon us that if Jesus is not your king, he's nothing. He's nothing to you. And that's the whole point. He won't be anything to you until he's your king. He won't be your savior until he's your king. And you need a savior today. If you do not know Christ today, you need a savior, but you need to hear me right now when I say you need a king too. They go together. And some of you are sitting there, arms crossed, well, maybe not literally, <laughs> but you're sitting there, you're thinking, I don't want to hear this. I don't want a king. Without a king, there is no salvation from your sins. But I want you to know, actually, deep down, you do want a king. You do. So let's close with three reasons why we actually want Christ as our king. He's attractive, he's beautiful, and he's the best. Let me give you three reasons why. First, why should he be your king? Because he is kind. That's the first thing. He's kind. You know, part of our aversion to authority is that we've seen it abused. It was Lord Acton who said power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely Would you believe, though, there's a king who doesn't use his power to abuse or manipulate or crush his subjects? Would you believe there's a king who actually uses his power to save, to free, 
He uses His power to empower His subjects and and make them fellow rulers with Him. Isn't that an amazing thing? Why should we doubt a king who's willing to be crushed for his subjects? What do you think he's going to do to you if he died for you? Why doubt a king who promises to make you a co-heir with him? That's what uh, Revelation 5 says. He's made us kings and priests to our God. Friends, what I'm saying is that when you recognize what Christ has done, namely that he hung on a cross for you and he handed a crown to you, you have no reason to, to run from him, to, to flee from him. Namely, when you see his kindness, you would say, why wouldn't I give my life to this king who has done this for me? He's hung for me and he's handed me this crown. He'll only do me good. In the 1950s, a political philosopher, Hannah Arndt, wrote an essay entitled, What is Authority? She had an interesting take on it because she was a Holocaust survivor. What does it mean to be an authority over someone? And and she explained that authority is not the same as power. It is not the same as persuasion, even. She said this, Authority precludes the use of external means of coercion. For where force is used, authority is forfeited. What does she mean by that? Well, she's making the point that properly executed authority does not make anybody do anything. Let me say that again. When properly executed, authority doesn't make anyone do anything. The means of coercion are not external, but they're internal, perhaps in the same way that one's conscience compels one. And that means submitting to that kind of authority is not a loss of freedom at all. When you recognize the kindness of Christ your king He's not going to be making you do anything. You will want to do whatever he asks. And you'll be the better for it. So why do you want Christ as king? Because he's kind. Secondly, uh, because he's in control. And you say, wait, isn't that the whole problem? I don't want him to be in control. Here's what I mean by this. And you need to really listen listen up to this. He's in control whether you like it or not, guys. Okay? And so your life will go better for you when you bow and submit to him rather than trying to reject the inevitability of his reign. He is reigning. He is in control. And so there's something natural to submitting to that. Uh, This is the uh, phrase we find in the Bible. It was used in the ancient world about kicking against the goads. That's what Paul was doing when he was Saul. What are goads? Boys and girls, have you ever heard that phrase, kicking against the goads? It's a farming term, and we have farmers, so I hope I get this right. But the idea is that uh, goes are these sticks with a, a pointed end that farmers would use to guide oxen. And if they didn't want to go a certain way, they'd kick against that stick. But what that would do is just drive it further into their flesh. And so to kick against the goat was just to, to be in more and more pain. So it was better just to go the way that the uh, farmer wanted them to plow. Do you want to spend all your life kicking against the inevitability of Christ's kingship? We don't want to submit because it doesn't feel right to us, but that's our sin nature talking. It would be most appropriate to say that there's nothing more natural than to submit to Christ as king. We were made to be subjects. Our life will be better when we bow. Beyond there being something natural to this kind of submission, there's also something really comforting and reassuring. Let me ask you this. Are you a worrier, not a warrior, a worrier. Do you worry? Maybe you're a warrior of worry. Are you always anxious, fretting about tomorrow? 
If so, why? You know, it's because you've taken upon yourself something that doesn't rightly belong to you, namely the trajectory of your life and the world. That's why we worry. Um, We don't get to say what's going to happen to us, or we're not the king. Worry is essentially the result of, of a profoundly unqualified person stepping into a profoundly weighty role. You and I are not qualified to run the world. And when you realize that, You'll stop worrying. Martin Luther's friend, Philip Melanchthon, he was his mentor. Martin Luther mentored him. He was prone to worry. And uh, he would often kind of throw up his hands and say, what are we doing, Martin? It's not worth it. The the Reformation has failed. Flee to the mountains. They're going to kill us. And in those times of doubt and anxiety, Luther would put his arm around Melanchthon and he would say, oh, oh, let Philip cease to rule the world. Do you need to cease to rule the world today? Do you want to stop worrying? Submit to Christ as king. When you recognize that he is the one ruling the world, you will stop worrying. Make him the king of your life. He is already in control of it anyway. Finally, last thing. Uh, we, we want Christ as king because he's kind, because he's in, in control, but, but lastly, because he's coming back. Because he's coming back. And that means a lot. You know, in the, the, uh, according to legend, back in the 6th century, Britain's greatest king and, and, and warrior uh, died in battle. And so now the, the people of Britain faced a, a threat, the threat of uh, invasion of the Saxons, kind of unprepared and, and unarmed. And, and they felt like without this king, they had nothing. And so a myth began to circulate to give the people hope in face of this looming threat And the myth was that that king who had died would come back. Um, That he would come back at their greatest hour of need. And so what they did was they inscribed on his tombstone what became something of a rallying cry for the Brits for future centuries. And the inscription in Latin read this, Hic iatset Arthurus rex quandum rex que futurus. Here lies King Arthur, the once and future king. Of course, King Arthur is, is mostly myth, uh, but there's something that's very real in this story, and that is the propensity for us to put our hope in dead things and dead people. Now, this myth began, but it, it, it carried on. There's record of, in the 11th century even, uh, the, the Welsh people saying, all will be made well when Arthur returns. 500 years later from his supposed death. Now they're really, they've really bought into it. All will be made well when Arthur returns. Now we have this propensity for putting our hope in dead things, and if they die, what does that mean? They disappoint. The, the way the Welsh got over their disappointment was to invent this story that the best king they ever had didn't actually die, that he'd come back when they needed him most. Friends, you need to know today, Christ is the once and the future king And he doesn't have that engraved on a tombstone because he doesn't have a tombstone. He's alive right now, reigning and ruling right now. And he will come again. And if he's coming again, what's that mean? It means he doesn't disappoint. You want him as king because he is the one person who makes promises and never, ever lets you down by breaking them. Does the return of Jesus fuel you with hope and with joy? 
There's a curious and convicting line at the end of Psalm 96. I'm closing with this. You can turn there if you'd like to read it, Psalm 96. And um, let's see, verse, verse 11 Look at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar, and all that fills it, like fish. Let the field exult in everything in it, like deer. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. When? Before the Lord. Why? For he comes. There's this interesting picture that the psalmist gives us that when Christ comes again, the earth and the heavens and all the creatures in them will rejoice and the trees will even start singing because they, are, they know something that for some reason we can't get. That Christ is the good king. That he's the best king. That he does all things well. He didn't die for trees. He died for you. He died for you. And he's coming back for you. And if you want to know, Pastor, how can I know really he died for me? You can know because you will have this yearning in your heart to hail him as your matchless king through all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises made long ago to David that what we need, a king, he will come. And he has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he hung on a cross as one punished for the sins of past kings, for, for our sins even. And yet, death could not keep him. He was raised, proof that he is your son. Proof that we will be raised with him if we put our hope in him. We thank you for this king who once was here on earth and who in the future will come again. Would you melt our hearts, tear down the barriers that we've placed up to to reject his rule over us? Instead, O God, would we recognize we need him, we want him because he's kind, because he's in control, and because he's coming again. Pray this in his name. Amen.